To all the veterans out there, thank you for your service. This is the Street Smart Mental Health Podcast. We are coming to you, as always, from the Lou Fuse Automotive Group Studio. My name is Michael Wellington. We have a very special guest, somebody who I've been chatting with recently about the mental health climate, and we're going to get into some details about the mental health world from a medication standpoint, from a nursing standpoint. My friend Diana, the nurse practitioner, is joining us. Diana, how are you today? I'm good, Michael. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Wanted to have you in today to talk about certainly bipolar disorder, something that I'm very familiar with, something that I live with. You have been involved in helping people with bipolar disorder for a number of years now. And also, you've been a nurse practitioner for how many years? It will be 10 years it was 10 years this last December. Okay. So a solid decade, solid decade of working in the nurse practitioner space. And you know quite a bit about different bipolar medications. Tell us a little bit about your journey as you learned all these different things about the bipolar medications that are out there today. Yeah, that's a good question. I would also highlight that my experience prior to being a nurse practitioner was working in healthcare as an RN. Okay. Going back several years. So um, more, reason, more than 15 years? <laughs> we'll say 25-ish years. Okay. So that's a reasonable amount of experience, it I'd is, say. It is. It is. It is. And the reason I even bring that up is to highlight how my education, going back to nursing at an excellent university, SLU University, how that compares to where we are today, Okay, but how profoundly still behind the times, a lot of the nurse practitioners, providers, prescribers, perhaps even going into the therapists, social workers, the whole arena of healthcare, just the multidisciplinary team in general, kind of is as far as the diagnoses go, depression, well, bipolar, things yeah, like that. I know that you're very passionate about this stuff. And I feel like just from talking to you a little bit, it seems like your passion has come from all these years of experience from what you've learned from the very beginning of being a nursing student up until today. And I feel like this information is going to be very valuable for people out there trying to learn about trying to figure out ways to take care of themselves the best way they can. I hope so. I think what I try to do day in and day out, we all have to have something to get up out of bed and show up to work is right. I hope if anything, something I say gives someone the courage to normalize mental health versus any other kind of medical condition that we confront day in and day out, no matter what. I was in GI, which is gastroenterology, probably the majority of my career. And I would have told you prior to taking a job where diagnoses like depression, bipolar, schizophrenic were a daily conversation that I now have I would have told you that I did not see patients that were mentally ill if you would have come and asked me just three years ago. I sadly would have looked at you in the eyes and said, they go to psychiatry. I don't, I don't typically see them. Depression is something that is a household term. Mm -hmm. And we've become extremely comfortable with drugs like Lexapro and Zoloft and the SSRI, the SNRI, those kind of medications that we prescribe daily. I don't know that we really ask the questions, though, around what, what we're doing there, why we're doing it. So over the last couple of years, it's been incredibly enlightening to me as someone who was a provider prescriber. I did have the ability. I'm not medically trained as a doctor. I don't ever pretend that. I think that needs to be said. But I was given the authority to diagnose patients and prescribe a medication for the appropriate treatment. For people that don't know, real quick, what's an SSRI? Oh, I'm sorry. That is a medication that... It modulates serotonin receptor sites in your brain. And when you think of those receptor sites, think sadness, think tired, lack of motivation, the depressed kind of people describe it in all different terms, but that person that's just feeling a lack of motivation and sadness, 
that has been the go-to drug. I uh, think Prozac, I think everyone's probably familiar with the drug like Prozac. That was one of the first to come on to the scene. And even when that drug came on, the medical world, which I was very much of a part of, again, was very hesitant to say in primary care setting, which a primary care doctor would be your internal medicine doctor. Mm-hmm. I don't feel comfortable treating that. That is for psychiatry. The problem is, and this is where the rub is, and this is where I feel like it has to change in the stage of education. The better educated we are, the more confident we are, and the more compelled we are to acknowledge something when we see it and, have, and have the conversation. So at the end of the day, my training, nursing, nurse practitioner, and I guess I would say psychiatry is not my specialty. You can specialize in that, and that would be a different conversation, and, and those providers would have a different take on it. But someone that has my degree, which is I'm an adult nurse practitioner, geriatric adult nurse practitioner, there was no discussion around mental health that was anything more than a slide up on a screen that said an algorithm. You mean when you were in school? When I was in school. Okay. Yeah. That was an algorithm that was to treat depression. And you don't know to ask the questions back then. You just assume. Well, of course not. How would you? Right. You're being educated for the first time. So you aren't looking for something and you're not comfortable even knowing if it's in front of your eyes. And what I would say to you now is what I have learned over the course of the last couple of years, not only because of my current job, but my current job had me saying, okay, I am in this field of the pharmaceutical industry. I'm in this field well, I have an advantage on everyone. I can go and dip into my continuing education. I have to keep up my license. With I'm going to dip into the, the psychiatry component of that, and I'm going to become an expert through my extra CMEs. My, it's a CME? It's a continuing education. The, I have to keep a certain amount of continuing education hours and clinical hours to keep my license. Okay. So I can do that in any capacity I want. Typically, when I was a gastroenterology, hepatology nurse practitioner, I would look into those kinds of continuing education, the diagnoses around ulcerative colitis. Well, now, serving the population of people in mental health, I decided I'm going to dip into the psychiatric educational component of my nurse practitioner. So how are you helping people in the mental health world today? I am a pharmaceutical I'm in the pharmaceutical industry. Okay. So you're in the pharmaceutical game. You're also a nurse practitioner. You're highly educated. So you, even though you're not a doctor, you've seen a lot of this the last two decades. I think I've seen it my entire life, right? Now that I know what I know, where I was headed with that statement was that there aren't continuing education hours for me as a nurse practitioner to go and really learn about bipolar disorder. Okay. Specifically. It's not there. The education just isn't available. And what that helps me understand is when I look back at my 10 years as a nurse practitioner, I didn't even know to know that I was not doing it right. But I can look at you and say, when I think back to the patients that I served on a daily basis, whether they were in there for GI, whether they're visiting their cardiologist, their pulmonologist, they're there. And they're struggling and they're suffering because people aren't asking the questions that need to be asked. And if I don't ask them, who will? And I think that's the big part for me that I hope to change, if I can, of anyone in the position of having the difficult conversations with patients about what's going on with them. Specifically, when you think about depression and someone comes in and has the ability to say to their provider, I'm struggling. My marriage is... I'm not doing well in my marriage. I have a terrible relationship with my children. They're not talking to me anymore. Right. I've been going through several jobs. I lost my job. I lost my job. Yeah. I'm not managing my money. I'm impulsive. For someone to be able to say, okay, we need to slow down. We need to just ask some more questions. Not just hand someone a medication and a diagnosis that we're most comfortable with and that we're not willing to grow into and say, if you are a depressed person... There's two differential diagnoses sitting on the table. And just to back up, so I'm not talking above or ahead of anything. Well, I don't know how old you are, but let's just assume that- I'm 45. Okay, you're 45. Perfect. You're a 45-year-old gentleman, healthy. When you come into me with a symptom, so let's say you come in and you say, Diana, I'm having like heartburn. Okay. Okay? 
I go to bed at night and I feel like I have a burning in my chest. I have two choices there. I can say, well, okay, I'm in GI and you're in here for heartburn. You probably GI is uh, gastroenterology. So okay. I just dealt with your esophagus, your stomach, right? Okay. So my point is that you come into me and you say, I have heartburn. My job is to look at all the possibilities that okay. lies there. And one of the one that comes glaring into my field of expertise is that this could very well be a cardiac, a heart issue. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to miss that. Why don't I want to miss that? I don't want to miss it because that is the more lethal diagnosis sitting there. And I'm going to rule that one out first. So I'm going to say, hey, Michael, you know what? You probably have some reflux and it's a very common thing. And I have a very easy solution for you that includes some lifestyle and a very benign medicine. But before I'm going to do that, I'm going to go ask you to see your cardiologist and rule out the chance that there's anything going on with your heart. Because that's the more important, that's the SOS. We got to make sure we take care of that first. Well, take someone who comes in and says, I'm sad, I'm not feeling good. There's two possibilities there. You're either bipolar depressed or you're major depressed. So those are different? Bipolar depressed is different than regular depressed? No, or? no. So that is, no. Depression is depression. There is absolutely no way for me to look at you and say, you're depressed and you're major depressed or you're depressed and you're bipolar depressed, unless we do what I was saying a few minutes ago, which is slow down right there and say, okay, I hear that you're depressed, but let's dig a little deeper and make sure that something else isn't going on. And why would I want to do that? Because bipolar depression is the more lethal diagnosis. It's the one that of the 700 DSM diagnoses out there, there's one that is highlighted to be suicide fruition. Okay. And that's bipolar. Not to mention, they are typically the more burdensome on the healthcare systems, the ERs, the primary care doctors. They run the risk of comorbidities. They're the ones that carry the other health diagnoses, diabetes, high blood pressure, a lot of the common other diagnoses, though, that can lead to a pretty unhealthy and shortened lifespan. So you would want to know earlier what was going on with that patient, just like you would want to know with any other diagnosis. Okay. A common tool that has been implemented into hospitals, doctor's offices is called the PHQ-9. And that is an assessment tool that is given to just about every person that walks into a healthcare provider's office, like a primary care doctor. That assesses depression, but it does not highlight the elevated symptoms. And something that I've come to realize is if you don't ask, you're never going to know, right? So why would you just look at people's lows and not look at, do they run the risk of having the highs, the impulsivity, the anxiety, the insomnia. Mania. The, reason, the mania, the manic part, which I would say, you know, and I was taught, you know, you're kind of programmed, I think, perhaps, I don't want to make generalizations, but perhaps our society is, when you think bipolar, you think of the naked man running in the street, worshiping the moon and dressed up like a woman and wearing lipstick and things like well, that. Well, the naked man running in the street, worshiping the moon is a real thing though. Yes, but it is one side and it is the side that they do not typically live in the most. Correct. The, the, the place they sit in the most is depression. 75%, I think, is the statistic running out there. They're sitting in sadness. Okay. So they might not even have the ability right to know what is going on when they go through those episodes of hypomania, mania. For one, they associate that with good. They're not going to go to the doctor when they're at the casino 48 hours in a row. And Correct. They're not going to do it. And it is on the professional to kind of dig a little deeper and slow down and say, hey, you know what? I hear you're having lows, but you know what? I gave you this screener that also has looked into the elevated symptoms and it looks like you're struggling there too. And if you respect me and you trust me, we're going to have a conversation right now. And the conversation is that I know that your friend is on Lexapro and doing well, and that's what you were hoping to, for me to give you today, but- if I do that, not only am I not going to help you, I could make you worse. And you just wouldn't do that in any other diagnosis. But when you look at the prescribing information of an SSRI, the medicine we talked about a little bit ago, household name items that are SSRIs would be Lexapro, Zoloft, Prozac. They say, do not give this medication without first ruling out bipolar. I mean, it's right there in the prescribing information. So for somebody that might be listening that doesn't know 
I mean, SSRI, again, tell me what that stands for, but also what does that do for someone who takes an SSRI? Are they, what are they going for? What's the effect that SSRI gives? So serotonin, again, is the, it is the receptor in the brain Mm -hmm. that we associate with the sad, the down, the somnolence, the sadness, the lack of motivation. Depression. Depression. So what happens is they run low serotonin and these medications block the receptors in the brain for the reuptake of serotonin, leaving them this pool of happy. And the other side of that would be dopamine. Mm -hmm. Dopamine is kind of the receptor in the brain that we can think of when we think motivation, cognition, energy, energy, anxiety, impulsivity, irritability. It tends to be the one that we, I would say in my training, it's the one that you go, okay, okay, okay. I got to be careful if I'm using a medication that is hitting on that area of the brain, because what that, what dopamine also sits in is the part of the brain that affects things like the metabolics. Metabolics would be glucose, prolactin. These are things that are associated with unwanted side effects of high cholesterol, diabetes, a propensity to have things with that. Scarier is it sits in a part of our brain that if you block the dopamine, if you block that. So when you think about the elevated symptoms, a lot of times you think we've got a lot of dopamine sitting over here and we need to lessen it to calm that person down. It also, if you block that, causes side effects that are really unwanted in the medical world. So historically, when you think about the word antipsychotic, which are the drugs that in the past, that's what they hit on those receptors and you have to take them so that you don't have and don't struggle with the irritability and the anxiety and those types of symptoms. Those drugs, historically, people that are not psychiatry do not want to utilize. They don't want to bring into the picture. Therefore, if you don't have to dig into that conversation that would require that medicine, you just avoid it altogether. And I think that's where we've gotten. So let me ask you this. When I was struggling with my own bipolar depression, I would always go into my doctor and say, doc, I want to take an antidepressant because I don't feel well. Right. 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 And he would always say no, because antidepressants in people that have bipolar disorder, antidepressants have the ability to to spike mania in the person who has bipolar. So, so he would never give it to me, which was good, but But did you understand? I mean, here's my question. First of all, at that point you had to, someone told you you were bipolar. Oh yeah. At that point I'd already been bipolar for five years. Well, I think where I am at, what I'm offering is that somebody has to have that conversation. And when you think about the, I think it is, I'm not even going to throw out, m- millions of people are struggling with this. This isn't the unicorn. This millions is, of people are struggling with bipolar, you yeah, mean? Okay, yes. yeah. Even more that are with depression. So yes. it is more common. But here's where I get the rub for me is someone struggling mentally. Mm-hmm. the chances of them dialing up a psychiatrist first and saying, hey, doc, can I have an appointment? Because I think I have bipolar is probably unheard of. If it isn't unheard of, it is extremely rare. If they can get an appointment. Right. Exactly. Yes. It Amen. might take three months. It might. Get a fucking and then think about what could happen in those three months. Oh, I mean, you could be dead. You could be dead. So where do you think they end up first? If you're not feeling good and you think you need something and you want to talk to someone, what kind of doctor? Okay. Well, okay. Maybe urgent care. I mean, I'm guessing. I have no idea. I know. Perfect. Maybe, but more likely it's going to be your primary care doctor. Okay. And you're going to have a conversation with them. Okay. And where we are, and I do, again, I do not want to generalize. There are primary care doctor and I applaud them. Every one of them that has come to date with things that we say in our, you say things like evidence-based, like I practice evidence-based research. That would mean I look at everything that's coming on the stage currently, and I evaluate if it's something that I can utilize in my practice because it's the best option today to use. And I'm okay with changing habits, right? Like I'm, I'm willing to say that the old way didn't work and I'm willing to jump into a new way because it's a better option for the patient. So for those providers that do that at primary care level, even at the urgent care level, ER level, great. But what I've come to see visiting over 200 plus offices is that the majority of us, and I'll say us because 
I did this wrong for many, When you many say us, what do you mean? Who do you mean? Providers. Many of us in the primary care, in the, so I'm in confused. the non-psychiatry. I'm confused. You're a provider. Yeah. You mean that's what a nurse practitioner is a provider? Yes. Okay, I didn't oh, know sorry, that. Sorry, 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 sorry. Yeah. yeah, so I'm a prescriber. Okay. So as a nurse practitioner, sorry. As a nurse practitioner, mm-hmm. I will say us out there because okay. I did not do this correctly day to day to day are not in the initial visit with someone who comes into me, Michael Wellington, go back however many years, goes into his doctor and you're on the struggle bus and you're like, I'm not doing well. I'm not doing well. Mm-hmm. It is in the hands of that person on the other side of the table who is the expert, right? Who agreed to see you today for those symptoms. They agreed. Mm-hmm. You might've said, I'm sad and I'm have anxiety. I'm coming in for a depression and anxiety. Most places would you tell you that happens every day, all day, and seven more times on Friday, right? So I've agreed to see you. Well, if I've agreed to see you, then I have agreed to say, okay, I'm gonna take a close look at what's happening. I'm gonna examine your symptoms. And I'm going to ask the appropriate questions to make sure that earlier I get the right diagnosis. And if I don't want to treat it at that point, if it happens to be a part of the body that I am not comfortable with giving medication or running the right tests for, then we live in an amazing country and we have so many unbelievable medical options out there. I'm going to send you to, if you have an x-ray that comes up wonky and you're breathing and I'm not sure what to do here and I've given you an inhaler, I'm going to send you to a pulmonologist and know that, hey, now you're in the hands of an expert. I did what I could to the best of my ability. Well, why wouldn't we and why can't we do that same exact thing with someone who walks in the office that we've accepted that says, hey, I've got depression and anxiety. And all I'm offering you is the vast majority today sitting there are not asking the questions to give them the right diagnosis right there in depression. And those questions would be around Are you struggling with insomnia, impulsivity, racing thoughts, agitation? What's it like at home? Get your family members in there. And one of the reasons I would come on and talk to someone like you is who I imagine the people tuning in are more of the struggling person and not a bunch of doctors and nurses out there trying to educate themselves better. Um, I don't know if everybody's struggling, but there might be people that know others. Know others. Well, Well, my good point, I backtrack on that empower yourself and be able to go in there and not just say, there's only one thing I'm going to walk out of here with. And that's the diagnosis of depression. Be open to the fact and question, is this the, is this the best? Why do you know, why do you think this is the best medicine for me? You know, like, okay, you want to give me Prozac. Well, what, what, why, what makes you think that that's going to help me? Is there a chance that something else is going on? Is there any other options that this could be? Is there any more information I could give you? Would it be helpful if I brought my husband in? Having a conversation with them. I have found that probably, especially in mental health, that is the best. That is something that you are struggling with. Having someone go in with you can be one of the most helpful things that you can do. They see it different, right? Yeah, I mean, I wish people would do that more often, but a lot of times, and correct me if I'm wrong, when they go into this general practitioner, right, who they're just seeking some sort of relief from, does the general practitioner... Do they just pawn them off to somebody else? I don't know the answer. I'm I just... know. Well, it is, so that it gets complicated and I don't want to, my main motivation, like I said, every day is just to empower growth in the mental or health arena. Like there's a lot of room for growth and we've come a long way with medications, a long way. This isn't a difficult thing, differentiating between major depression and bipolar. It's actually a pretty easy thing. And the treatments options that we have out there are incredible. And it will actually, the office will see less of this in there every day. If, if we embrace the information that's out there at our fingertips about the diagnosis of depression versus bipolar and are willing to have the conversations, the medication treatments are, they're endless and they're good. To your question, I can't say what people are doing and how willing they are to go down the medication algorithm with a patient for those symptoms before they toss them to psychiatry. But I would say this, a lot of times we're just guessing, right? We're just kind of throwing fuel on a fire, hoping that something sticks and not really asking the questions of, this person has these specific symptoms and I've got medications at my fingertips 
that are therapeutically researched to benefit this patient that has it. Am I willing to do that? Can I do that? Is that something that I'm exploring? Or am I just putting medicines out there that I think, that I hope, and and wishing for them to go away? Most often, ultimately, yes, they want to get them to psychiatry. Psychiatry is, we live in the most saturated psychiatric. We have a lot of psychiatry. Saturated? You mean like there's a lot of psychiatrists? There's a lot of psychiatrists in our particular zip code. But it's a lot of bad you, ones. I can tell you that. <laughs> you cannot get into them. Yeah, I know. And you just said it. And that's where I'm, I keep going with this is that, yes, like anything, the doctors can only do so much. Mm-hmm. And the assumption that everyone is a good one is a Oh, it's bad false. One. It's mm-hmm. false. So the, the struggle is, and I think this is where it's, you know, I have outside of my careers, now that I know so much that I do know, I can't have a conversation with someone that calls and says, I heard you talking the other day and I think my sister or my best friend's husband or, and I just think we are so hesitant to have the conversations about, know, about, about our mental struggles. You oh know, yeah, our, there's like, no question. The conversation is so difficult and it's- Why is it so difficult? Do you know? I don't know. Because it's easy for me for some reason. I don't know why. I know. I think we are an ego-driven sure. human- and it takes a very, very, I personally, like, I, I know that my journey in life has been filled with hardships. So I kind of, as you go through that and you learn that there is another side of those and it's usually a brighter, better, stronger person on the other side of it, mm-hmm. having that courage to get through it, to get the help and the resources that you need to do that, to be willing to accept the help, to be willing to have the conversation about what's going on in your life and be vulnerable that capacity, not only can help you get through it, but the impact it can have on other people is just incredible. So I know that, obviously you know that, but I am always out there encouraging, again, the healthcare providers and the people themselves. You gotta have the, you gotta, you know, you gotta have the conversation. There's, you will never help anyone if you don't have the conversation, but at least you gotta start it. And our healthcare system in general has changed so dramatically. You know, we've become such an algorithm-driven, computer-driven, Yeah, just a side story. When I did my clinicals, I got my nurse practitioner degree in 2011, 12. I did it though with three little kids working a job, going to school full-time four nights a week. And on top of that, I had to get clinical hours. And when I got those clinical hours, it was 275, I think, Nobody wanted to give nurse practitioners those hours. It had to be primary care. They're burdened. They're busy. And I knew that I needed someone to take me on and keep me. I couldn't go hopping from doctor to doctor trying to find hours with everything else I had going on my, in my life. So I had met a primary care doctor that was really good friends of one of the doctors I work with. And he was nearing retirement. But one of the things that I learned from him that is kind of all I'm seeing is like, is it like it's almost like a lost dying thing out there in the healthcare world is he's like, you have to promise me that you will touch the patient in that room with you every single time. Whether physically touch? Physically touch, whether it's your stethoscope, press on their belly, pat on their back. Why is that? Like it, because it's a connection piece that is sometimes just necessary to gather all the information, get the whole picture and you said that, so you just asked me, and that's kind of what I was thinking. I'm like, well, that's kind of a strange No, not thing necessarily. To say, I just didn't know if it was but, part of a strategy when it is. Well, it is. It's part of the strategy to say, like, you're a human being, and I care about you as a human being. Mm-hmm. And even though you have stomach pain, and I have a computer screen in front of me that says, is it on the right side? Is it refractory? Is it radiate to the left side? I might have all these questions to ask, and you might answer, but maybe you don't fall into that. Maybe it's different. And the only way I know that you're different and that you're unique and you stand out is if I say, go ahead and lay on the table and I'm going to press on your belly. And that same connection has got to happen when someone comes in and says, I'm not feeling good. I'm struggling. That's an interesting, good point. And that is the part that we're trying to squeeze 25 people into a day for these providers, prescribers, five minute, 10 minute intervals. How is that even going to be possible? And I think that's what happens is when I go in and I challenge and I say, hey, are you asking the questions? Are you slowing down? What are we doing? They're burdened. They're dealing with 15 diagnoses in one 10-minute yeah. visit. Thyroid, diabetes, cholesterol, 
gout, you know, like a million things. Then now you're going to have some conversation and get into a deep conversation about what's possibly going on. It's hard. And then to your point, what we, me, be prone to do, I have no time for that. Here, here's a referral to psychiatry. They're going to help you. Now, two things. One is if I said to you, if you came in and you trusted me and I said, I got you covered on all these other things and I hear that you're having this depression and I gave you Lexapro, it doesn't work. What I would like you to go is see the psychiatrist. Okay. Now, it's a household name for me. I say it every day, all day. It's not a big deal. But what is the likelihood then of you just jumping on in and making a phone call and be like, oh, when it's, it's like, oh God, I have to go to a, you know, like I got to go see a psychiatrist. Like my problems are so bad that I, you know, they're telling me I got to see, I'm not going to see a psychiatrist. Like I'm not, I'm Well, not there's person. the ego you talked about. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm not going there. And there's a place for it. There's a place for that person to, it's an, psychiatry is an important person in the treatment of mental health, but it's, I would say equally as important for the front line of the patient care it's, it's just as important as the people that originally that initially see these people to ask the questions and have the hard times. We have covered so much here. Let's take a quick break and come right back. We've been here for over 70 years, giving back to community charities, local organizations, and youth athletics. And now we're the official automotive sponsor of St. Louis City SC. We've been here, providing the best car buying experience to our customers. Lou Fuse, we are here with the respect you deserve for 70 years and counting. Welcome back to Street Smart. Let's dig back in. Well, let me ask you a question that I've encountered quite a bit. So I started kind of trying to help people in 2013 up until now. People that have bipolar, you know, parents or people themselves would find our website and call me and they'd say, my son has bipolar or my ex-wife has bipolar. Can you help them? They're, this person's thinking about killing themselves or whatever the situation might be. That happened, that's happened quite a bit. So inevitably, I would always say yes, and I would always get these people on the phone. And one of the things I learned in talking to some of these people is that sometimes these people that have bipolar, they have been so over-medicated by a psychiatrist. Like I'm talking five, six, and seven medications that these people are taking in one day. Like how the hell does that happen? I never could wrap my head around that because when I, these people would tell me that they're taking five, six, seven medications a day, I'd be like, well, number one, it sounds like you're taking too many drugs. I mean, I don't care who you are. Even like Superman would have a problem functioning every day with that many medications in their system, right? Now, I'm certainly, I'm not a doctor. I'm not even close to a doctor. I can barely read. But I know that if I, I've taken a lot of different bipolar drugs to try to find the one that worked best for me, right? And I can tell you that if I took four, five, six, seven medications in one day, I'd be a zombie. So and maybe you don't know the answer to this, but how does that happen? How does a person get prescribed five, six, seven medications by a psychiatrist? A short answer is I don't know. It is not, that's not a pool of medicines I'm familiar enough with to be comfortable enough to even delve down that. So I am equal with you in saying it would scare me to do that. That's to not, have that so, many in your yes, system, that's not, right? Well, it just, I would not be capable of prescribing multiple right. medications because of their side effect profile. Good to hear. And- the red flags would, I think, naturally go up for the people around the person trying to manage that. So if you think about it, and I don't know which medicines or what medicines, but a lot of them require titration, serologies, which is blood work monitoring, and have a pretty significant side effect profile that goes along with each and every one of them. And I would think as someone in a, you know, and that is a lot of people that have reached out to me, knowing what I'm doing right now are the ones that are like, well, you know, my son is on, to your point, four medicines. And we were worried about him. He went on a seven day, you know, he's awake for seven days. He was threatening to kill himself. We were worried about him. So of course they're going to have him take the medicines that were prescribed. Now he won't get out of bed. Mm -hmm. And so Sarah here you Quill are. comes to mind for that one. <laughs> if I could talk about Sarah. Quill. <laughs> I'll let you do that. But again, this goes to, I'm not asking and I would never ask people to become doctors themselves. But man, with the benefit of the internet that you have at your fingertips mm -hmm. and chat rooms, you can empower yourself enough to be able to question that. 
-hmm. And that, again, it goes back to like my big ploy. And if I can do anything day to day is to say that one, you're not alone. This is as common. And, and it's up to the, like, if I were to go into an office today and you were to walk in, the first thing I'd say to someone is, I see this all the time, mm -hmm. every day. You're not alone. Mm -hmm. And I can help you. You have to trust me. Right. And you're going to take medications that you're not used to. And the bottle may say on it, antipsychotic. Get over it. And I think I was telling you when we talked, something that I learned, and I learned this from one of my continuing education video audio, was I was always like, why would you call something an antipsychotic? That is not. You don't like that term. No. Do you? Uh, I guess I became so used to it when I was in hospitals and stuff like that. And frankly, to be totally candid, there were times when my mania brought me into a psychotic state of mind. So I didn't, yeah, it's not a pleasant word, right? right? I agree with you. But if I needed something in my mind to... Okay, but if I said to you, you have two options, I'm going to put you on an SSRI, an SNRI. What's SNRI? You didn't... Yeah, that's a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. So a serotonin and norepinephrine. So the three receptors that you're typically modulating when you're talking about depression, anxiety, and all the elevated depressed symptoms are serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. If I'm sitting at a table of 10 women, it would at some point be almost a giggling match of what medicines are you on? Oh, I'm on Lexapro. I tried Lexapro. I'm on Vibrate. Oh, you're on Vibrate. I, I bet on this Zola. conversation happens a lot in America. All the time. Oh my God, well, I had Wellbutrin on. Oh, I love my Wellbutrin. Okay. I've taken that one. That's fine. Now you start saying something like you just mentioned a minute ago, I'm on Seroquel and all of a sudden it's Seroquel. What's that? Oh, it's an antipsychotic. How well does that resonate? You're not going to be willing to say, well, oh, I'm on this antipsychotic medication. Certainly. Uh, yeah, it may be labeled as an antipsychotic, but I would label it as a sleeping pill I know, myself. I know, I know you don't like okay, No, 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 no. I, I just don't think, I think Seroquel, I think Seroquel, in my opinion, as a non-doctor, should be used when people are in supreme mania to calm them down and get them to a place where the mania can go away. But after that, forget it. I think it's a horseshit drug. Now, real quick though, I want to say something because you brought it up. You talked about side effects, right? Yes. So here's one of the things that I think people need to understand. A lot of people that I experience, whether it's talking about bipolar or any other condition, they say, well, I don't want to take medicine because I looked up on the internet and the side effects are X. The side effects are Y. Well, you know what? That may be true on the internet. It may say that. Yeah. But my experience like with the medications that I take, like I've looked up the side effects of my medications or my one medication, I take lithium. I don't have, I don't get the side effects that the internet says. So my point is for people that are afraid to try a medication because they're worried about the side effects, the side effects may not even hit you. They may not even be a factor, but don't not try something and experiment to try to get better because you're worried about the side effects that were listed on the internet. Well, and I think that comes, that also comes into play with the same theme of giving the prescribers the mm -hmm. doctors, the nurse practitioners, the confidence to be able to hand that medicine and know that that's not something they are worried about either. Mm -hmm. There are options. There are medication options out there where the side effect profile is, anyway, anytime you hit on dopamine, anytime you touch that with a 10 foot pole, mm -hmm. side effects, like I'm trying to use lay people's- Layman's terms. Layman's terms. Yeah. I'm trying to think of, but the side effect profile can be quite scary. Sure, like it, that's what I'm kind of getting at. Permanent yeah. tremors. Okay, yeah. Okay, in impulsive movements. Mm -hmm. Okay, who wants that? And they can be pretty dramatic. You don't want to sit there sitting across the table with your tongue constantly jetting out of your mouth. Yeah. Sexual side effects. Mm -hmm. Weight gain, significant weight gain. Yep. And to your point, somnolence, which is fatigue, tired, like walking through syrup. So you start combining a concoction of these medicines together. It's not something that you're looking to do when you're a primary care doctor right. or a nurse practitioner. And I totally get that. What I would offer is about the side effect is, again, going at the place where I would advocate, educate, educate, educate. You mm -hmm. know, even the people that have the authority to prescribe these is that if you really look at the research and the prevalence of those side effects, how bad they were. Were they bad enough that the people stayed on the medication 
or got off the medication. Mm -hmm. And I think what you'll find is there are options out there, good ones, where people didn't get off of the medications because of the side effects. They stayed on because they got their life back. And they're out there. And it's not a made-up imaginary thing. There's no fluff here. It is the facts, Jack. And something I think about when you just mentioned the big pile of medication, bunch of pillboxes, is how likely are you, especially if you're struggling with a mental illness, how likely are you to take those medicines as you're supposed to on a day-to-day-to-day-to-day-to-day basis? Keep up with the blood work that's necessary to stay on them and all that. How likely do you think that is? Versus one or two pills. I I don't know. I mean, I don't know how to quantify it or give it a number, but it's either they're not going to take anything and they're going to stay ill, or they're going to take everything if they've been overprescribed. And then they're going to have that, like you said, walking through what you you said, syrup syrup and you're sluggish. And yeah, I mean, a lot. And the other thing is like, I don't think a lot of people, to your point, that a lot of people aren't willing to do their own research. They just go into the doctor and they just assume that this is what is correct. Whereas some people that I know that have gotten healthy after being in weird places, they've done their own research coupled with a doctor's research. So, I mean, people just have to pay attention. It's not a one size fits all. It's not. And I, again, I go back to you're going to a doctor for symptoms. Like you have symptoms and you want those symptoms resolved mm-hmm. so that you can go and enjoy your life. Of course. And that's what we're assessing, our symptoms. We're asking you, give me your symptoms. And then my job is to listen to those symptoms and figure out what's causing this. How can I help this person? Mm -hmm. What's their goal too, right? And if you think about a diagnosis like bipolar, Mm -hmm. and I think I was saying this to you, we will take on depression and we will prescribe the medicines that we have deemed necessary for depression to date the serotonin drugs, like Tic Tacs. And I'll have that conversation with people that I'm depressed. I'll have it at the baseball field. I'll have it at the women's night. I'll have it at the Christmas party. I'll tell my boss. But the minute you say the word bipolar, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden there is a complete division of comfort that occurs. I would agree. And that has to change. Mm -hmm. But if you really break it down, and this is the part for me that I get really kind of feisty about is- Passionate is the Passionate is what we just said when we said bipolar, it's not a one, it's a two. You don't just need help with one particular thing in your brain. You just Mm -hmm. need two, Mm -hmm. two. Yeah, That's it. It doesn't mean anything other than that is that you don't just struggle with one part of the equation, two. It's not a unicycle, it's a bicycle. It's not a one lane road, it's a two lane road. If you just kind of wrap your arms around the idea that embracing that if I'm going to get better and I'm going to have the life that I want, and I'm not just going to wake up and get through the day, but I'm going to get through the day and enjoy it. I'm not just going to show up to my son's baseball game, but I might coach it one day. I'm not Mm -hmm. just going to go to my job. I want to be the manager one day. If you want that, I'm not just going to stay in my marriage. I'm going to really thrive in my marriage. Mm -hmm. I love it. If you're a mom out there and you're thinking, I, you know, you come home, you're like, I just don't want a mom today. I just don't want to do it. Give yourself the ability to have all of the things by just confidently, courageously having the conversation that says, I might need more. I might need something else than what my friend needs. Oh, yeah. And have that conversation be so easy. And as prescriber, as a nurse practitioner, moving forward in my life, my conversations will never be the same with people. Like you're depressed. Well, what does that sound like? What does Mm -hmm. that mean to you? Hey, you know what? I get that the conversation we're about to have is one that maybe you didn't expect, but you trusted me. I'm your doctor. We have a relationship. And if that's the case, then we got to have a conversation that might be a little difficult, but we're going to call baby ugly and I'm going to get you better. And that is to me as simple as that diagnosis has to be. And we have the medications to guide it and make that pathway pretty great. No, I obviously agree with all that. And especially, you know, I talk to people a lot about treating bipolar or all mental illness as a competition, like a game. Like if you play a sport or or, or competitive, you want to win, right? Well, let's go ahead and have that difficult conversation. Let's talk about the ugly baby, but let's compete against it. Let's take it on head to head. And like you said, every single day, you're going to have an opportunity to win. And some days maybe are tougher than others and you might not win, but I feel like having that mindset of, 
I'm going to do everything I can to try to improve. Like you said, I don't, I don't just want to work at my job. I want to become the manager. I want to become the president or the, you know, whatever it might be. And I think that's something that people, when they hear that word bipolar, like you said, they get scared, right? And the thing about it, and I know you'll back me up here, please do, but bipolar is extremely treatable and manageable. That's like, what I'm saying. Pe- people it's don't like, understand yeah. that. They think, well, if this person's got bipolar, they're screwed or I, I, it's, a, it's a curse. I'm fucked, you know, whatever. What am I going to do? I have bipolar. Well, actually, bipolar out of all these mental illnesses is one of the most treatable conditions there are, but people just don't even realize it. It's shocking. It, that's why I was saying to you. That's why I couldn't in good faith walk up to a peer mm-hmm. and tell them this is something you can handle. This is something you can manage. If I thought I was drowning them with something that they absolutely couldn't manage, it becomes manageable when you ask the question and you take the time to make sure that they are being given the same treatment you would anyone else and that they have the medicine in their hands that will do its job. And the thing about bipolar, and you may, if I'm wrong here, say I'm wrong, but you don't know when you're going to you know, it's not like a little man floats out of the sky and says, tomorrow you're going to start feeling some manic symptoms and you're oh. going to go into a mania. That'd be nice if I knew right. that years ago. <laughs> right. Um, if that man would pop out of the sky, it would have saved me a lot of trouble. <laughs> but yeah, you don't know when it's going to You don't hit. know. And guess what? Neither do I. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, yeah. So it's a very unpredictable roller coaster. Oh. And the longer you go unmanaged, the worse things get for that person. Right. And the more things like mortality become a very, very real scenario. So we're not talking about something that we can just ignore and hope goes away and just continue to say, I just don't want to, I don't want to have the conversation. I don't want to ask the questions. I don't want to utilize the screening tools. I don't want to prescribe the appropriate. We cannot afford to do that anymore. The climate of mental health is not getting better. Nope. And it is bipolar is probably one of the most underdiagnosed diagnoses Mm -hmm. and literally a very, very, very easy situation to manage at the level of primary care. Always, every time, no, I'm not going to, I would never say that there's, there's varying things. Sure. There's acute cases. Yeah, I am not, yeah, I would never, I would never suggest that, but knowing everything I know, Mm -hmm. I could say with a thousand percent ease, I would walk into a chair tomorrow and see 50 patients and if I felt all 50 needed to be medicated or given an opportunity to trial a medication for bipolar, if I thought maybe could be, no problems doing that, having the conversation. And the only thing that changed my perspective, the only thing that changed my perspective is education, knowing what I did not know. Right. And being open to the idea that there's a better way. Things have changed. We aren't still sitting in 1940. We aren't even in 1982. We are in 2023. And we have a lot of conversations about a lot of different things now. You would think that if it was as simple as you don't just have a monopolar situation going on, you've got a bipolar conversation. Yeah, I think it's important. You know, you've you've used the word conversation quite a bit. And I think that's important because that's where it starts. And then from my perspective, you got to be willing, whether you have bipolar, certainly with bipolar, but other mental illness as well, you got to be willing to put in a little work. But I want to touch a little bit, tell you a quick story that you made me think of when you were talking a moment ago. Recently, about two or three months ago, I got a call from a very close friend of mine and his sister was struggling with bipolar. That was, she had kind of learned that she had it. She's like 50 years old and she learned later that she had it, didn't know for many years. And luckily I can report that I talked to my friend, we talked about a few medications, we talked about some things she could do to help herself. But one of the things that I thought was interesting with her was, and this goes to what you were saying a few moments ago, she to this day doesn't want to call it bipolar because the word bipolar freaks her out. She wants to just call it a mood disorder, which it is. Oh, okay. It's yeah, a mood yeah. disorder. They, yes, I mean, a lot of people, on, yeah. when you talk about diagnosis codes, a lot of providers yeah. use that one. And certainly I'm sure... Before recent years, you're familiar with the term manic depressive, which is the same thing as bipolar. But I just feel that it's wild to notice that word bipolar just really freaks people out, which to me, it's just a word, right? And But it really does put people in a a weird state of mind because they don't want to admit that they have it because they think that it's, and and maybe to a certain extent, this is true. You know, people look at you, might look at you different, but part of being able to handle mental illness is not really caring what other people think in my opinion. 
I also think it's a it's a required normal. You have to normalize it. Yes. And make it yeah. a word you say, like you say, pop tarts, and you say because popcorn, it's treatable, it's manageable. I mean, it's manageable, but not only is it that, but it's prevalent. It's oh, not. It's, everywhere. it's not uncommon. That is, like I said, that is one of the most enlightening things that happened for me was to realize. I think about. I was a GI nurse practitioner. Think stomach, guts, and butts. And people would come in, a lot of times female, and they had this stomach pain, generalized stomach pain. They had been to their primary care doctor. Their primary care doctor had run CTs, ultrasounds, MRIs, blood work. I don't know. Nothing's coming up for me. Go to your gynecologist. Then they go to the gynecologist, who would then again run a CT, do a pelvic exam, do some more blood work, and run their ultrasound. And they'd say, I don't know. Nothing's coming up. And maybe they had trialed some medicines in there for an infection. Maybe they suspected they had an H. pylori infection or, you know, just some other benign thing. Now we'll call her Sally. Sally comes in to see Diana and she's sitting in my office. And think about the months that have passed right now, too, when you think about mm-hmm. going into my primary care doctor, follow up in a month, follow up in two weeks, follow up and you got all these tests. Now you're three months. Now you're going to wait to get into your OB. Brutal. For now you're at. And maybe you've trialed some medicines in between here. And in order to get the effect of the medicine, you're waiting. Mm-hmm. And now you come in and see Diana. And you still got this stomach pain. And I say to you, like, okay, well, you've had two CT scans, an MRI, two ultrasounds, uber gobs of blood work. And why I'll do, we can do an upper endoscopy and we'll do a colonoscopy. We'll look in your stomach, we'll look in your colon. We'll rule everything out. Now we have gutted this poor woman. We have exposed her to more radiation. And she's a mess. And you look at her medicines and she probably was on a Lexapro and a Wellbutrin and maybe some Xanax because prescribers are more comfortable with Xanax than they are a lot of other things. I used to give it, I'm sad to say, more than I would now. And she's crying. Please tell me something's come. Nothing's wrong. Please tell me something's wrong. Tell me I have something because I can't get rid of this stomach pain. I can't focus on my job. I don't want to go out with my husband anymore. I'm laying in bed. I'm in pain all the time. And what I would tell you today, looking you straight in the eyes, is what I would probably say to Sally is, Sally, I will not run any more tests on you. Not a CT, not an MRI, not a scope, not a blood work. But you and I are going to have a conversation about what I really think is going on. And I think there's a mental health issue. Mm -hmm. And I think you might be bipolar. Mm -hmm. Or maybe some depression is happening. Yes. But this is not a physical ailment that you are struggling from. This is a deferred pain because you have been put through the reels and you just, no one's taking care of you. No one's had the courage to have the conversation with you to go, what's going on? Tell me about your house. Tell me about your home. What else is going on? We don't do it. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I lost a friend a couple of years ago to, we believe it was a mental illness situation, but he also had a salt deficiency. But we believe after everything that happened over the course of like a year and a half, that it was definitely mental illness was the kind of the catalyst, if you will. But one of the things you and I spoke about before today when we were talking on the phone before you came in for the uh, podcast was that 24% of the American population has been diagnosed with some form of mental illness, right? And those are just the people who are willing to go find out, right? Right. So what you've got extensive experience, you know, my guess is that it's closer to maybe 50% or maybe just under, maybe it's just over, I don't know. But I mean, you got to realize that everybody has something, right? Mm -hmm. Like most people, a good percentage is probably over 50%. But I would say, yeah, everyone's experienced an episode Mm -hmm. in their life where they struggled with some symptom within their mental capacity. You know, like they struggled mentally where it affected their life. Oh, a thousand percent. Yeah. I flunked out of college because I, I mean, I had to leave, uh, (laughs) I had to leave a high school because of things that I wasn't diagnosed with. I wouldn't be diagnosed with my bipolar for years after that. So, I mean, everybody, every, that's what I, I I cut you off. You were making it well, but well, but no, you, you, you were piggybacking on top of it. It's like, realize that like, no one is like perfect and no one has like a totally clean bill of health. Anybody can experience depression at any time, whether you lose a job, somebody passes away in your family. Whatever the case may be, I mean, no one is immune to any of this stuff. And then if you are a person that's lucky enough to have great health and not experience these mental health challenges, you're probably going to have someone in your family or at your work or a friend of yours that has a challenge. Well, think about how you got wind of my name is that Mm -hmm. 
I could say this in my previous role in GI, but even now what happens is I'll be sitting at a table at a party in a meeting. Oh yeah. And I start talking oh. and people start listening. Uh-huh. And inevitably, either through Facebook Messenger, through a friend, through Googling my name, someone will text me. Mm-hmm. I was listening to something you said and I was wondering if you and I could have a conversation. Oh. And why did they do that? Because I sat there as easy breezy as I would talk about going to the park with my kids. I'm talking about what is going on in our world with mm-hmm. mental health. And having that comfort allows them to have the courage to go, okay, this person isn't going to tell me I'm crazy. I mean, that's the word that you just get all like, I'm not crazy. I'm not bipolar. I'm not crazy. No, you're not. You're not crazy. And it's going to take a while. I feel like I am on the front lines and doing this, having this kind of conversation daily. I wish I could figure out the resistance. Like I wish I could figure out the resistance piece and the unwillingness piece not only the system, but people in general, mm-hmm. being able to say to your husband or your spouse, I'm something's really not right here and I need help. Yeah. And, it takes a little and, courage. You know, you know, that's just not a normal, it's not normal. But if you said I've had diarrhea for three days, right? you'd tell that. And that's not extremely pleasant either. You know? No, but, but I mean, <laughs> I, I've, exper- I've experienced the identical situation. You know, maybe I was at a, um, game, a cardinal game, or I was at a golf event and someone heard me talking about, they hear the words bipolar, right? And then they inevitably will, they might not come up right then, but they'll, before the event is over, they'll say, Hey, I heard you talking, you know, my sister has this, or my stepdad has this. So the conversation is getting louder, but I think it's going to need more conversations like this. And certainly the work you're doing both on the pharmaceutical side and then your nurse practicing, you know, you, you have a very unique combination of helping people. And I'm glad that you're doing the work you're doing. And I'm glad that you're super passionate about it too. I mean, I remember when I called you for the first time we were talking about it, I was like, we got to get this girl on immediately. <laughs> I mean, what, where do you think that passion for this comes from? The passion comes from seeing how easy it is to truly save someone's life. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're saving a life. And change the course of and some lives as well. Course. And acknowledge that I did it wrong. If I could yeah. go back in time and apologize to those patients that yeah. I sent off, that just, I, I prolonged their struggle. But you didn't back. know, you didn't know at that time that you were I, I doing it I did not know, but that, so you asked where my passion comes from. It yeah. comes from because now I do. And I have, I have seen what happens when someone mm. just embraces education and is open to change. And I keep saying courage too, because it is a courageous thing to say, you know what, maybe what I wasn't doing, what I wasn't doing wasn't working. Mm -hmm. And now I need to do something differently. And that is part of it. Um, The other part is I know I had one of my good friends commit suicide a year ago, November, who was a highly functioning, beautiful woman whom struggled her entire, her entire life and wound up killing herself. And it's, it's devastating. And when I talked to her family, it was simply like, we just, we could never get her medicine, right? You know, we could never, couldn't get her. And compliance is a huge deal. And the compliance, I don't, not, I'm assuming everybody knows what that word means, but it's just, you know, the ability to stay on those medicines for someone that's struggling mentally. It's a challenge for people that don't have medicines for their brain, but at the end, I, I would say this. I would, I would say that our brain is a highly important organ, as important as the heart, your lungs, your kidneys, your liver. It's not something that we can just continue to ignore as part of the health equation. And it is the overarching component to so many other comorbidities and health conditions and the quality of life and, and the ability to take care of yourself and exercise and manage your weight and take your other medicines and get to job and make your money and pay your bills and have the relationships. I mean, take that one out of it. You can't. And so if we can get to a place where we acknowledge that and come to recognize that the terms around describing the issues around it, they are not bad words. They're not scary words. They're necessary. They are necessary words to treatment and 
and getting things better quickly and perhaps, you know, like I said, saving people's lives. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for educating all of us on a lot of things. We, I definitely didn't know a lot of those things. Thank you for your passion with this. Thank you for your willingness to admit what you've learned over the years, because I think it's important when people, you know, they may have made a mistake in the past or maybe not. I don't think you made a mistake. You were just young. And when you were educated, the whole establishment didn't really know what was going on. And thank you for going out there all these every day with your job and and trying to make people's lives better and save lives and improve lives. I think that's uh, super commendable. We were so happy to have you. And uh, that's Diana. And um, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. This is Michael Wellington, and we will see you next time on Street Smart.